Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. It says in Matthew 14.33, Matthew 14.33, when they were in a ship, It says that they were in the ship, came and worshipped him, saying of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Now, when this happened, at that moment, the Lord stood by. And he didn't say to the disciples, oh no, don't you do that. You should only worship God. And by the same token, there was this blind man that was healed by the Lord in Mark 9.38. The whole history there about this blind man, the challenges he had. But at one point in John 9.38, it says, Lord, I believed, and he worshiped him. Again, the Lord didn't say to the blind man, don't do that, what are you doing? Don't do that, only worship God. He didn't say that. A leper, a leper worshiped him in Matthew 8, 2. Matthew 8, 2, behold, there came a leper, worshiped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou can make me clean. The Lord didn't say, well, I can make you clean, but don't worship me. He didn't say that. There was a ruler in the synagogue who worshiped him in Matthew 9, 18. Matthew 9, 18, while he spake these things unto him, unto them, Behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, she shall live. Again, the Lord didn't say, You're doing the wrong thing. You shouldn't worship me. You should worship God. Woman came and she worshipped him when she asked for help. It says in Matthew 15, 25, Matthew 15, 25, Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Again, he didn't say to the Canaanite woman, Look, I know you're not from Israel, but I've got to explain to you, Only God should be worshipped, and that's not me. Don't do that. He didn't do that. So all of these instances where people worshipped him, he never said to them what he said to the devil, you should worship the Lord thy God only. He never said that. So the only explanation is that he is the Lord their God, and that was right for them to worship him. We've got these three temptations here that we're kind of looking back over. So I want to take a little bit of a bird's eye view of these three temptations. I mean, we've seen several things you could say about these temptations, but we've seen how these three temptations relate to what the Bible says encompasses everything that's in the world. Everything that's in the world is really encompassed, according to 1 John 2.16, 1 John 2.16, for all that's in the world, and here's the encompassed parts, the lust of the flesh, like satisfying hunger after you haven't eaten for 40 days. The lust of the eyes, like seeing the glory of all the kings of the world. And the pride of life, like being hailed as the great one who falls down from the temple and doesn't get hurt, is not of the Father, but is of the world. So these three temptations, as I was mentioning here, they touch these three areas of all that's in the world. So when he resists these temptations... 
He is repudiating the world and all that's in the world. But there's another dimension. There's actually several dimensions about these three temptations. But another dimension of these three temptations has to do and really gets to the heart of the type of Messiah that the Jewish people really wanted and that the Jewish people were looking for. First of all, the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah that, as they put it, their leaders put it, in Matthew 12, 38, Matthew 12, 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered them and said, And an evil and adulterous generation that sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. So the Jewish people are looking for a sign from their Messiah. That means a sign that's outside of the signs that are described in the Bible about the Messiah in the scriptures. This is a, an extra scriptural sign. And he says, that's evil, that's adulterous. So, but to turn stones into bread, now we're talking, because that's the kind of sign that they were looking for. This temptation to show this people this sign was not predicted in the Bible that it was going to happen. So he would be stepping out of the bounds of what the Bible predicted about what he would do as far as signs go. And if the Lord had done that, then the Jewish people said, now we're talking, that's what we want. We want a magician. We want a magician who can turn the stones into bread. That's what we want. And there's no scripture that predicts the Messiah is going to turn stones into bread. Okay, so that's the first temptation as it relates to what the Jewish people were looking for. Second temptation, the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah that would be a powerful king of the Jews. They wanted a Messiah who would overthrow the Roman rule over them, that would free them from being slaves to the Roman Empire. And what greater indication that he was this powerful king of the Jews than to fly down from the air from the temple in Jerusalem, the city of the king. That's the second temptation as it relates to the people's expectation for who the Messiah should be. The third, the Jewish people were looking for Messiah that would rule over the earth and would bring peace to the earth. As a matter of fact, that's the big argument the Jewish people use today. Well, it can't be the Messiah because he didn't bring peace to the earth. This is what the third temptation represented. For the Lord did become the ruler over all the earth. So these three temptations catered to what the Jewish people wanted in a Messiah. And if the Lord had agreed with these three temptations, in other words, to give in to these three temptations, then he would have agreed to become the Messiah that the people wanted. And there was a conflict between the Messiah that God the Father wanted and the Messiah that the people, the Jewish people wanted. God wanted the Messiah to stay within the bounds of doing what was prophesied in the scriptures. Whereas the people wanted the Messiah to do tricks, to do miracles on their demand, which they would have had had the Lord uh, given in to the first temptation and snapped his fingers and the stones were made into bread. Okay, another conflict. God wanted the Messiah to be the king of the Jews who would save the Jews from their sins by dying on a cross at the hands of the Romans. Whereas the people wanted their Messiah not to be killed by the Romans, they wanted their Messiah to kill the Romans, <laughs> which they would have had. Had he given into the second temptation and he could prove that he would not be harmed by jumping off the temple. 
And the last, God wanted the Messiah to be meek and lowly and humble, just like a servant who would wash the feet of his followers. But the Jewish people looked at that and said, oh no, how demeaning. They wanted a Messiah who would be proud and powerful and everybody would serve him, which is what they would have had had he slipped and given him a third temptation and become the ruler over all the kings of the world. So really, these three temptations boil down to a conflict over whether the people were going to accept the Messiah that God gave them or demand that the Messiah be what they wanted. And that's really the way it is today with people. They look at the Savior that God gave and sent to die for their sins, and they see a Savior that was so humble that he agreed to be mutilated and tortured in this degrading death on the cross. And the reaction of the people today is very much the same. It's like, oh no, that's not what I want from God. A person dying on a cross, that's crazy. So it all really boils down to, do you want the Savior that God sent to die for your sins to bring you to heaven, or do you refuse God's Savior, and are you waiting for another? Are you still waiting for the Messiah to come? Now, so the history of these three temptations of the Lord is important because for a number of reasons. One is that it shows that the Lord Jesus could be tempted. He was tempted, and so it shows he could be tempted. In his state, he could be tempted. And this is a great mystery for us. We don't understand, but this is what's called a mystery in 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. So God was manifest in the flesh. God cannot be tempted, but the Lord Jesus could be tempted because this was God manifest in the flesh. And now we also see, now it gives us clarity as we look back on these three temptations, why in verse 1, the Spirit of God brought the Lord Jesus to be tempted into the wilderness, to be tempted of the devil at the start of his ministry. Why did he do that? And it was because, we can see, these three temptations, and these three temptations, it was like the Lord's mission on earth was laid out so clearly. It was like it was crystallized, like it had matured, like fruit. Because in these three temptations, it's like the song that Moses sang, and then Miriam took up after him and sang the same phrase, on the coast of the Red Sea, as the dead bodies of the Egyptians who were trying to kill them washed up on the shore. And you just kind of picture that scene. The water is lapping, and dead Egyptians are piling up there. And so they sing. They sing a song, and the lyrics are given to us in Exodus 15. Exodus 15, 1, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. And then we learn about the Lord Jesus in Colossians 2.15, Colossians 2.15, that he spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. So he starts off his ministry in this conflict, and he triumphs. He triumphs. And really, this beginning of his ministry is not like, okay, you've been baptized. Now, you know, let's, let's do something fun and great. Let's go feed 5,000 over here. Let's go do this. That'd be nice. Let's heal some people. No, no. The devil leads him immediately into this conflict here with the devil, which is these three temptations 
are like the swords crossed, where it's really, the fight is on. It's really like Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. The fight, and the fight is on. And the Lord describes this in Luke 11.22, Luke 11.22, when he talks about a stronger than he shall come in and overcome him. And he takes from them all his armor. They trusted and divides a spoil. In Hebrews 2.14, this fight is described is that Hebrews 2.14, it says the Lord took part of flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. In these three temptations, we see the Lord entering right into his mission. Now, that's his mission from God, which is what he was doing here. But Really, you can look at this when he starts his ministry as the Lord hearing three voices. He's hearing three voices. The first voice we're just talking about is the voice of God the Father. God the Father, the voice of God the Father is in his ears, and he can hear God the Father saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, have everlasting life. So he's hearing the voice of the Father saying, I gave you. I gave you. And to that, he responds to that voice in Psalm 40, verse 7. Psalm 40, verse 7. Lo, I come. And the volume book is written in me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. So the first voice is the voice of the Father. And he responds to that voice by saying, I am going. The Father says, you go. And he says, I am going. But there's a second voice that he's hearing in his ears. It's the voice of the Jewish people the voice of Jewish people. And the picture for this is way back in Exodus 2, Exodus 2.23, Exodus 2.23, where it speaks about that in the process of time, the king of, of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. So in Egypt... In Egypt, the Lord hears the sighing voice of the Jewish people. And so when he comes to earth, he hears the sighing voice of the Jewish people. And what are they sighing for now? They're sighing, and their voice is Isaiah 25.8. Isaiah 25.8. Isaiah 25.8 gives the text of their sigh, of their voice, of their cry to God, where it says, he will swallow up death in victory. The Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the rebuke of his people shall be taken away from off all the earth. For the Lord has spoken it. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So in those verses, Isaiah 25, 8 through 9, we have laid out for us four sighs. Four sighs that the Lord hears from the voice of the Jewish people. The first one is a sigh that death would be swallowed up, it'd be taken away. Second sigh, the voice, what they say in their cry, the tears would be wiped away. The third sigh, when it says that the rebuke of his people should be taken off of the earth, that means that the world's anti-Semitism will be taken off of the earth. And then the last sigh is for them to be saved, salvation. So that's the second voice that he's hearing as he's coming into the earth. Now he's hearing a third voice as he's coming to the earth. The third voice is the voice of the Gentiles. And the voice of the Gentiles, we can see a little bit in Acts 16.9, Acts 16.9, where Paul talks about a vision that he saw in the night 
where there was a man from Macedonia who was standing there and he was saying, help us, help us. And another part of the voice of the Gentiles that he's hearing in his ears is given to us in Isaiah 60, verse 2. Isaiah 60, verse 2, where it says, Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and the gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise, and glory shall be seen, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light. And then in Zechariah 8.23, in Zechariah 8.23, it talks about 10 Gentiles, 10 men, shall take hold of all the languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, we will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So the second voice is the sighing voice of the Jewish people. The third voice is the longing voice of the Gentiles. And they are longing to be helped to find God. They are longing to come out of darkness into light. They are longing to come to where God is. So in response to the longing voice, of the Gentiles, the Lord Jesus is saying, I'm coming. So he says to God, I'm going. He says to the Jewish people, I'm coming. He says to the Gentiles, I'm coming. And that's what makes the words of the hymn so wonderful when it really addressed both the Jews and the Gentiles, I mean, speaks of them rather. And it says, come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel, the Jewish people, Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth, the Gentiles, thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Okay, another thing we see when we look over these three temptations is we can see how these three temptations were a direct attack on the three offices of the Lord. His first office is prophet. He's a prophet. What does a prophet do? He receives from God and he gives to the people what he got from God. And so, would he receive food from God? And that would be his food? Or would he forget about God and make his own food? As an attack on the prophet. It was an attack on him being a priest. A priest is honored by God to the people so that the priest can represent the people to God. Is he going to wait for God to honor him as the priest to to represent the people? Or is he going to honor himself by jumping off the temple? And then king. His office as the king is... Power that's given to him from God. It's Psalm 2. Yet, God says, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And so here, the question is, the challenge is, would he take his power from God, from Psalm 2, or would he take his power from Satan? So this is how these three temptations relate to the attack of his three offices of prophet, priest, and king. And in these three temptations, we can also see three areas that touch us, that touch us as we struggle through life. First is the area of trust or distrust. Are you going to trust God to feed you, or are you just going to step out in front and just, I'll handle the matter myself? Second is presumption. It's the sin of presumption. We struggle with presumption. Are we going to wait on God, or are we just going to go ahead? And the third is the problem of ambition. Ambition. I'm going to get ahead. I'm going to rise to the top. Okay. Now, Other things we see in these temptations is that first we learn that temptation is not sin because the Lord was tempted, but he was without sin, which shows that to be tempted is not to sin. Second is that we can see in these temptations, there is no temptation that is irresistible. There is no temptation. And third, 
we see here, we shouldn't be afraid of temptation. We shouldn't be afraid of temptation. As a matter of fact, we should expect God to give us grace when we fall into a temptation. And we should expect that God is going to make us stronger as a result of the temptation. We've also seen here that how the devil is operated in these temptations. The devil did not step out to us and just said, just commit adultery, just uh, turn away from Christ. Comes more subtly, looking for that little compromise, looking for that little confidence, and then looking for that friendship. That's what he does, is he allures people. So again, these temptations show us that we really have to be on our guard. We really do have to tighten down the straps of our helmet after victory. So, but one thing that came out really clear from these temptations is the effectiveness of using the Bible. The Bible is like when the Lord told Satan, get the hence. He gave him orders. He gave him a command, and he left. That's what the Bible is. The Bible for us is the orders that God gives to Satan of get the hence. Every time... We fight with the devil. Every time the Lord fought with the devil, he fights back with it is written. And the proof that it was effective was that he left. And why so many people have trouble in the Christian life is because they don't know the Bible. There's an ignorance of the Bible. I don't know all the answers to everybody's personal problems. And Christian counselors and psychiatrists, they don't know all the answers to personal problems. But God does know all the answers to all the personal problems. And it's found in the Bible. And that's the reason why we need to know it better. You know, the Lord, when he spoke, he never said to the devil, you know, I think this. Or, And the other thing we learned from these temptations is we need to resist. We need to not give in. James 4, 7. James 4, 7. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. And the other thing we learned, too, about these temptations is, thank God, they're not forever. They're just a season. It's just a season where, like it says in 1 Peter 1, 6, 1 Peter 1, 6, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. It's just a season. And, and it says in Luke 4.13, when it's really talking about this passage here, it's really talking about what happened here. This is the section in Luke 4, when it describes that the devil left him, like it says in Matthew 4.10. Matthew 4.10, it says the same thing in Luke 4.13, but a little different. It says, when the devil had emptied the temptation, he departed from him for a season, as it says in Luke. It's just a time. This is a little time. In other words, it's like the devil is saying, I'll be back. I'll be back. But thank God that after these temptations, God sent angels, and they ministered to the Lord. You know, there's a world of demons out there. They want to harm us. They want to hurt us. There's also a world of angels out there. And you kind of wonder, what did those angels do? Obviously, some of them came with food. You know, here's some food for you to eat, just like they fed Elijah in 1 Kings 19, 1 Kings 19, 4 through 5, angels came and made him, made him dinner. But you got to kind of wonder if some of those angels didn't come congratulating him. Like it says in Revelation 12, 9, Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was cast out. The old serpent called the devil Satan deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused him. So maybe they were congratulating him. But whatever it was, we look back over these temptations and we can see that our part, in a temptation, is just to rely on what it says in Psalm 37.3. Psalm 37.3. Trust in the Lord, do good, 
thou shalt be fed, thou shalt dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. That's it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this history of the Lord's temptations. Thank you for laying it out so clearly for us, Lord, and thank you that we follow a triumphant Lord who triumphed over Satan. In Jesus' name, amen. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California, Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org, tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for the Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. 